Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown. Today I'll be talking to the author of Women of Power, Half a Century of Female Presidents and Prime Ministers Worldwide. The book is published by Policy Press this year. Hope that you really enjoy the interview that I did recently with the author. Welcome back to the podcast. Uh, I have the pleasure today, in person again, to have the author of Women, Women of Power, Half a Century of Female Presidents and Prime Ministers Worldwide, book is published by Policy Press this year. Terrell Scar, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm fine. I'm here for the UN Women's Commission. Yeah, it's wonderful to have you. You are currently Senior Researcher in Women's Studies at the Norwegian Institute of International Affairs Positions in your career. President, Director, Member of Parliament. How do we address you? What is the appropriate title for you right now? I never know, <laughs> because I've had so many titles, but, but most of them are not, you know, lifelong. So, but I would say that I, I'm, an, I'm a researcher, I'm an, an author, and I'm an activist. I have been very active in politics, but I'm, I'm, I'm actually not that now. And uh, if you then want to give some of the titles, formal titles I have had, I'd just say, make your choice. <laughs> Well, you, you have so many titles, so that is sort of a luxury to, to have, and, and apologies for the, some of the background noise. We're recording uh, sort of in person here. Let's talk about this book of yours, because that's, that's why you're here. That's why you're here in New York, to, mm. to talk about the book. I wonder if you briefly uh, lead us to Mexico City in 1975, um, uh, and, and tell us about um, what led you there and, and what happened there. This is a, a big part of the start of the book. Um, this is a pretty major event in, in, in world history, we might say. So, who was there? Uh, what did you experience? And, and what did you take away from it for the sort of the, the path of, of women's issues ever since? Well, I'm going to say it, it was a breakthrough. I mean, it was, I, I was there, <laughs> as you know, and it was, a, it was an incredible experience. I mean, I come from a small country, which is Norway. I'm a third-generation feminist. I saw, I mean, my grandmother fought for the right to vote, in 19, and we got in 1913. And when I grew up after the Second World War, I mean, there were no women in, in nearly no women in parliament, nearly no women in governments. I mean, huh? What did we fought for? And I remember my grandmother, she would kind of say when they got the right to vote, they were ecstatic. They thought that now women and men would govern the world together. Oh, it didn't happen. And so I, and I became a feminist already 12 years old because of school in Norway. The boys would tell me that I couldn't be class responsible because I was a girl. And I went home and I asked mother and grandmother because I lived with both. Can't I? Because I'm a girl. And they said, go ahead, go ahead. 
So I went back to class and I said, uh, uh, girls can. And the teacher said, uh, said, yes, in fact, girls can. He was a male teacher. Well, afterwards, it turned out nobody else wanted to do it because it was wiping chalk off the blackboard and uh, opening windows and things. But that meant that already from that time, I was a, knew that there were differences be, between men and women and they were, they were systematic and that women were being discriminated. So, so I was working as a, as a feminist. At the same time, as soon as I graduated and kind of become a grown-up person, I went to the Norwegian Association for Women's Rights, which my grandmother and my mother had been members of. And, and there I met a charming group of old ladies who had been fighting for rights all their life. And I, the fact that all of a sudden there was a young person, you know, they said, were just thrilled. And they said, oh, oh, wonderful, Tarl. Now listen, we'll manage the rest of the legal adjust, formal adjustments, but this will not become reality if people don't go out and, and, and engage in politics. So Tarl, you go out and engage in politics. So when I when I studied, instead of kind of doing, and there were no feminist groups at the time, and and, and feminism was a, a non no word, and it was an ice age. It was a housewives and out economic growth and out ice age in my country. So that that I managed to get into the socialist student group. I even became chair of the socialist student group. I wrote in a new in a, a left wing newspaper where because there were two. Elderly men who were very tolerant, they let me also write about social issues and, and economic issues, but I, nothing about women's issues. And then um, uh, we, was, we, were, we were expelled from the Labour Party, so we made a new party. And uh, by chance, uh, as, as time went, I then became uh, elected to Parliament uh, in 1973. And still, it's, it's, and then something was starting to change. The second feminist wave was coming, actually from the United States. And all of a sudden, you know, uh, feminism was, was was a yes word, and and, it, and they were kind of challenging. You know, the thousand flowers were blooming, and all of a sudden, I I, I did not have to maneuver managing to do things in spite of being a woman. All of a sudden, I could do could do things because I was a woman. And and, and 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 so what happened was, and to my great surprise, I was in academia at the time because because I had I mean I was doing my, my my professional technical work and not being either in politics or because I mean you had to choose where you were accepted as a woman. Huh? Mm-hmm. But then I was I was all of a sudden elected in parliament, and as a member of parliament, I managed to go to Beijing. And I mean, the second wave feminism—it sparkled the whole industrial world, and 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 more or less, but my country very much. So that all of a sudden, um, we managed to also get a breakthrough in the UN. I mean, the UN had women's equality already from 1945. My mother was even there in San Francisco, but that was a. You know, it was really it was not quite by chance, but it was by chance. And then they made the commission on the status of women. So inside the UN, that commission became a kind of yeast because they you know not only male politicians like all over in, in the UN, the General Assembly. I mean, it was only men and so forth. But in this commission, the governments would send women, and they would send women that that had contacts with the women's movement. So they became, you know, they they made a, a, an alliance with the civil society women's movement. And that meant that 
that they could push these issues. And, you know, it was heavy and it took long. But then in, in 1975, they kind of had a breakthrough and they're with the new feminist movement. And so the UN all of a sudden, uh, after a proposal from the Commission on the Status of Women, adopted 1975 as International Women's Year. And we had the first big international women's conference. Nobody had expected so many people. Nobody had expected so many governments. Nobody expected so many NGOs. Because what they did, and which was very, very good for the movement, was that they had they had a government meeting where NGO not only government representatives but also NGOs could could speak. And then they had a forum besides where the NGOs had had their own. And, and which in fact meant that both in, in, in Mexico and then listen to the names in Copenhagen where the next conference was in Nairobi where the third conference was in, and then in Beijing you, the different continents and that's not my chance the, the fourth was it, it not only made governments meet and agree upon policies but it, it strengthened the women's movement the international women's movement and there were thousands of women and, and from Mexico to Beijing, I mean, it was multiplied several times. And I think part of the problem in Beijing was who could cope with so many people. But, but what I, my experience then when I came to Mexico was, I mean, I'd been to the UN General Assembly and I'd seen all the men. And I thought, oh gosh. And, and I mean, the whole world. It, 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 that is a very special phenomenon, I think. Um, in connection with colonialism, Western patriarchy was exported in the political area. And, um, I mean, all over the world you have, you know, parliaments and cabinets and ministers and and it's all men. So even in, in parts of the world where women had a very strong influence, when they became independent states, they, they came, became independent with the colonial male patriarchal setup. Mm-hmm. So that, I mean, when the UN was created, I mean, there were 3% women in the room. Why weren't there 50? You know, there were 3% women among those who, who were representatives. And, and, and then, but then, and so when you can also the General Assembly, I mean, there were only men in the administration, there were men. But all of a sudden, then at the Women's Conference, I think 80% or something like that of the delegations from governments. They were headed by women because they kind of now they felt they had to do it. They had to find a woman. They spoke, of course, on behalf of their governments, but they were women. So all of a sudden, we're standing there with women from all over the world and with authority. In addition to the NGO forum, where you had even more, you know, one thousand flowers blooming, and they were making world decisions, and the and the media coverage was just unbelievable. And 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 the, and the and the whole the UN had appointed a, a woman who was um, was a secretary general assistant I don't know if she's under or assistant but at least nearly as the secretary general for for the women's year and the conference but a, a woman could not chair the conference so a man chaired the conference but okay all the very many of the others were women and. I mean, as a result of the conference, I mean, the, the world governments, they accepted that discrimination of women was a worldwide phenomenon, and they promised to, um, to eliminate all obstacles to the equal status of women and men. I mean, that was a revolution. I mean, nobody before 
how kind of it was, you know, we knew that there was discrimination here and there was discrimination there and so forth. But here, I think, I, I think it was 133 governments or something like that, at least because there were not quite as many countries as now. But, but I mean, it basically, all the governments at the time accepted this, and it was afterwards confirmed by the General Assembly. This is sort of monumental activities at, at this time period, and, and it sort of matches in some ways the scope of your book, which covers a, a long period of time and, and lots and lots of people. Tell us about the book itself. Um, how long a time period are you covering? Um, what was your ambition when you sat down to write the book? Um, what were you trying to accomplish? Because you, you clearly weren't trying to accomplish just a small feat uh, when, when, you, when you get to it. So, so tell us about kind of the, the scope of the book. Is this the book you originally set out to write? Because it became bigger than I thought. And the problem was that I started writing it in 2003, and then every year more there were more or different women getting high positions. And so I could just keep on writing forever. But I couldn't write on forever. I don't live forever. <laughs> so, the, so I had to, to negotiate with the publishing house, you know, what period should I cover? Now, my main aim was to, to cover all of them in the period that I, I was uh, describing. And I started with, with the, the creation of the UN in 1945, and where we had then actually, the world had formally accepted equality between women and men. And also the conference in 1945 supported democracy. So, I mean, there was I mean, the, the right to participate in decision-making for everybody was kind of also established as the norm. Authority regimes voted for as anything, you know. But then what happened in the years following was that, that you got the colonial liberation and you, the number of states increased and, and many of these became democracies. So actually in this, and then you had a technological development that was unbelievable with health and, and education also for women. So it was a period, from 1945, it was a, a very dramatic period, actually. And then, at the same time, looking at the statistics about women in politics, I mean, there was nearly nobody. And when you came to 1975, it was still not nearly nobody. I mean, there were some, but very rare. And, 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 and then you had the iron law, which meant that the higher up, the fewer. I mean, if you had... 10% in Parliament, maybe you had 7% in the Cabinet, but then maybe 1% or 2% globally uh, in, in, in heads of state and government. So, you know, the, 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 we had uh, suddenly in the 1960s, the first popped up, which was Hidimavu Bandamaraika in, 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 in what was then Ceylon, which is now Sri Lanka. And people were appalled. A poor country and a woman? It's unbelievable. How could she manage that? And she was called the weeping widow because she traveled around and wept. And, and then after her, we had Indira Gandhi, for example. We had Golda Meir. We had Isabel Peron. We had Elizabeth Domitienne in Africa. So all of a sudden, I mean, you got one here and there and on different continents, which was very intriguing. Why? After all, nobody. And then until 1960, and then between 1960 and 1975, you had five, but in different continents and very different backgrounds, I must say. And then, but then still, it sort of remained low and remained low and remained low. And I mean, even today, I mean, there are only 22 women in Parliament worldwide. 
and there are 17 women in, in government and cabinets worldwide. And there are uh, six, seven, eight, I mean, depends a little bit how, which year you take, uh, women among heads of state. So still, it's a very rare phenomenon. And what would happen was that in 1990, the, 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 the numbers started going up. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, it didn't go very much up. But the fact that it went up at all, I mean, I mean I'd, I'd lived so much disappointment even after 1975, where we kind of thought, we, we, my grandmother thought we had a breakthrough in 1913, I thought we had a breakthrough in 1975, and, and politics just practically did not move, you know? So all of a sudden when I saw the line went up, I got terribly excited. Gosh, oh, oh, is something happening? You know, is the women's movement maybe, you know, something happening? And so as soon as I had the possibility to do so, I mean, I had to get some money and support and things, I started writing the book, too, and then I, I took all the women who had formerly been presidents or prime ministers in independent states, acknowledged by the UN, um, and who had uh, had the office. They could be interim or not interim, but who had they'd been in office at least two months because you had some had been for one day, which just didn't make sense. So that now got 73 uh, to up to 2010 when I said, listen, now it's half a century. Maybe I should stop and catch my breath and analyze this and not only keep describing new and new and more and more because it's <laughs> I just have to stop. So there was half a century, 73 women in 53 countries. After all, that was a big challenge. Absolutely. And, and the, fun, the fun of the book are, are the, really the specifics, right, are, are the people in it. And, um, you know, as we sort of talked about at the beginning of our conversation, you spent much of your working life in West Africa. Um, so why has Liberia had such a tradition of women leaders? I think one of the interesting parts of the book is to, to find these, these places that, that have uh, traditions of, of women in power that might be surprising or unexpected. So you have an expertise in this, this uh, region of the world. Tell us a little bit of Liberia, um, some of the women who have uh, attained such positions of power, and, and why you think it's, it's happened in that country to a greater extent than in some of its neighbors even. The, if you look at the, in anthropology and traditional societies, it seems that there have been some societies, particularly in Southeast Asia and in West Africa, where women have had a traditionally much higher role than, than, than generally otherwise. This meant very often they were not only farmers, they could also be, be tradeswomen, and that which meant that they traveled and had contacts. And also, you had different that political roles. For, this is along the whole west coast of, of, of Africa. I mean, from from what is now Nigeria to what is now um, um, Guinea, um, and then it's along the coast. I mean, when you get inland, it changes. But I mean, there the women also would have contact with each other, and. Um, <coughs> And for example, they would have have dual political systems. In, in one one ethnic group, for example, the, the men would have their groups and their uh, elders, and the women would have their groups and their elders. And then at, at the top, they would uh, would consult. In, in Ghana, for example, it's the queen mother who appoints the king. Uh, she's not the king, but she appoints the king. And 
So when I started uh, reading about the world and, and about West Africa, I got very excited because actually coming from Norway, which I thought was a relatively, you know, democratic, progressive, pro-women, whatever society, I, I saw women having roles in West Africa, in, in Sierra Leone, in, in Liberia, in Ghana, in um, what is now, in, in, as groups in what is now Nigeria, and <clears throat> women had roles which I had never seen. I mean, you have in my country you have to go back to the Viking ages, maybe. Then women had a strong role because the men were away so much on the Vikings. But but apart from that, and and on my desk I have uh, Mama Yuku, who is that uh, was a woman chief in Sierra Leone, and who you know long before I came to West Africa, she was there telling me, go and learn from other cultures, go and learn from other cultures. So when I had a chance to uh, to uh, work with UNICEF in West Africa <laughs> I wasn't like to say no to say yes I mean I really and and, and what, what surprised me a bit I worked in the UN and there even if it was UNICEF and, and also the other UN organizations and they were working for women's questions and no they did not realize that they were in a unique part of the world and they felt that they knew best and if you just did what the, the followed western medicine and western education everything was okay but they did not wonder what women were thinking or people were thinking i was the only one who went to museums and, and, and tried to find out and i learned a lot but the arrogance of many of those even international representatives who went there and and, and were not interested I mean, they lost so much exciting learning because, mm -hmm. and then the tragedy is that when then then uh, colonialism came and they became independent, I mean, then they created a modern political system besides the traditional system. So that, for example, in international meetings, I would come from Norway. Beside me, I had somebody from Nigeria, where I knew there were very strong traditional uh, women in politics, never a woman, because they were from the modern political part of society. Now, in, in Liberia, uh, I mean, there could have, Mamiyuko is from Sierra Leone, and you could have had something like that in Ghana, maybe, maybe in Cote d'Ivoire, I'm not quite sure, but I mean, it did depends a little bit. But all along the West Coast, you have these traditional, different, different ways women have a special strong position. And, and in Liberia, I mean, Erin um, Sile, at first, she was exceptionally well educated. And I mean, she worked with the UN. She and, and she went back and forth. They had very strong dictatorships for many years. I mean, but she she even very courageous, persistent person who um, who um, became a minister even with the, with a dictatorial regime. It's a wonder that she survived. That she just wasn't killed. But when she could then get the post she got, first there was no predecessor. And in Africa, this is very important because usually those men who become presidents, they want to continue, and so a woman doesn't have a chance. And so very often those women you see get positions in Africa, they are then weak prime ministers under strong presidents. But she became president, and, that, and the reason, one reason was there was no predecessor. First, and she was very actively appealing to women, and... and in Liberia, I mean, women organized from the beginning, and there were strong women's groups and age groups and and um, uh, trade groups, and so and they organized for her. 
so that that it was really a campaign where she offered to be mother. At this, and this country had experienced war and, and conflict, you know, and, and women, I mean, as some of them said, <clears throat> made, men have made a mess of it so long, now let's get, like, give women a chance and maybe they can do something, do something better. But she, there was a woman before her. There was one who actually, in the middle of the negotiations trying to get peace, was a temporary head of state. And because the, no, 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 the men couldn't agree on any man, so they took a woman, and she actually negotiated the peace. But then they had elections, and then they elected the wrong man, the the, the warlord, and then they got new war, and so and then uh, Ellen Silev came in. And also, I would say the, the women were fantastic because they were very active. I mean, there's no, not by chance that that, that um, Ellen Silev and one of the leading NGO women in Liberia got the Peace Prize, Nobel Peace Prize together because they organized women and went and they would go and they would they would occupy the negotiation terrain. I mean, when the negotiators sat there, they would sit around the building. They couldn't get in, but they'd sit around the building. They would threat to demonstrate naked if men didn't. They would not let the men out, and they would demonstrate naked if the men didn't agree. So they were very active, putting pressure on and uh, and to obtain peace, and and this they carried on and and elected Ellen Yeah, I I have to assume that some portion of the the women that you um, talk about in the book uh, you've you've either known or you've you've seen speak or you knew about prior to writing the book. But one of the fun parts of writing a book is is the surprises, the the um, things you didn't know going in, the the, um, the the situations you discover. Is there anyone in particular that you write about in the book that was a surprise to you, whose story you didn't know very well, who stuck out as you for for someone who who has invested a life in these issues and said, even I didn't know uh, the complexity of this this person's life or or the contribution they made. Is there anyone in in this book that that you say, well, if you didn't know about this person before, read the book because you'll learn uh, about someone who, who we all should know more about? That is a difficult question <laughs> because, well, first I, I I knew about I've been studying it so long, so I knew about most of them, and um, and also uh, I had been working in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and I traveled all over the world, and and I had ma- <coughs> managed before I I wrote the book to to do some of the inter- some interviews while I was still in Ministry of Foreign Affairs. So I managed to speak, for example, with Sheikh Hasina in Bangladesh, with um, Gloria Arroyo in, in the Philippines, with Claudette Verle in, in, in Haiti. And, uh, of course, I managed to interview Lua Brutland in Norway and also Vigdis Finnbogadot in Iceland. Um, <coughs> I, I think maybe I, I, I would turn a little bit round and say, I mean, my when I went into this, I had experienced myself going into politics as a woman in the seventies, before the the International Women's Year and so on and so forth, and and I mean that's the case with nearly all of them. You have to have a mentor. I mean, you're going into a male-dominated world. You have the, polit- the political parties, and I say there's something that should change, the political parties. I mean, they should let women in. 
and they should use women all over the world. And so you had to be accepted by political parties. And when you, it, it, they came to power in different ways. Uh, some were, were substitutes for, for dead male relatives. Some were outsiders who, by chance, you know, were brought in. Most of them had to go up the insider way in the political parties, so they had to be accepted by the political parties. And that's where the big challenge came. I mean, one thing is being there and being accepted, despite of being a woman, not deviating too much from male politics. The other thing is being a woman, being a feminist. And... and I was very, I, I felt the pressure. I mean, my mentor, when I went into politics, was a very, very active and exceptional man, and he supported me being elected to parliament. But when the new women, and that was before the new women's movement came, and when the new women's movement came, he said, now you don't become like those crazy women, you know. So, so I, I, you know, I felt that the, the, the pressure... The, co- the co-optation they talk about in sociology, where you kind of it's it's the, it's the it's the subtle the, the embrace where you lose your breath, <laughs> which means that you could be there, but you have to promote the male-dominated policies. And I was very worried that these women actually were were promoting the policies of the men and were not voting policies specifically for women. And that was where I really had a positive surprise because I found they, they fell into three categories. You had first those who were conforming and who, um, who, who behaved like men. I mean, part of Margaret Thatcher is an example. But you know, even Margaret Thatcher, who I define as an anti-feminist, she would not have got her position if there had not been feminists fighting for more women in politics. Huh? So uh, <laughs> she, was, she actually depended on them, but she did not acknowledge it. And then you had some, the great majority would kind of compromise in promoting women's interest and men's interest and finding a way of doing it. But they would do something for women. I mean, if they would, for example, promote girls' education or or health for women, or they would take away reservations from the convention for women, or I mean, they would do something specifically directed at women. And then you had uh, uh, about a fourth who were, I mean, who were outspoken feminists, and who said, "Really, I'm going to fight for women's causes. This is the important thing." And if I should mention. One person who I came, really came to, to admire it was uh, was uh, Michelle Bachelet from Chile. I mean, uh, she in a Catholic country where I mean the, the norms, the macho norms are so strong. I mean, she had gone into politics. Her her father had been tortured by uh, by the dictator, and and she went into politics, and she even became minister of defense, which is extremely difficult being a woman, but she did it in a way where she, I mean, she really tried to change the, the policies of, of the military and, and that she made them promise not to intervene in civil affairs again, which, I mean, is a right, uh, an important thing. And when she then became elected president herself the first time, because she's now there for the second time, uh, she put on the TV lights and there was one man, one woman, one man, one woman, one man, one woman, one man. We were enthralled. There were, you know, 50-50. And she said, you know, I now have 36 measures for women I'm going to implement at once. And, you know, it was just fantastic. So, and she really did, she had some problems with, because she didn't always have the 
enough a majority in the parliament. But I mean, she really went doing it. And then she could not be re-elected because of the system. So what she did, I mean, in fact, she became leader of UN Women and, and then fought for women in the UN for a period. And then she went back and now she's elected again as, as president. And I'm very excited to, to see now how much she's going to try to move things. Um, I think I think it's very clear um, uh, what what this book is all about and, and the, the variety of of, of stories you tell, but also your interpretations, I think, are just so interesting. Uh, Terrell Scar's uh, book is Women of Power, Half a Century of Female Presidents and Prime Ministers Worldwide. Um, it's out and available. I hope that people uh, have the chance to read the book. Terrell, thank you very much for your time today.